I just looked at what was on the market, what the prices were, and then I basically just like undercut them. And that does not work. Trying to win on price is just a, it's a race to the bottom because there's always going to be someone willing to offer their product for less. I'm Kyle Bringhurst, and today's episode is a year one episode I recorded with my good friend Isaac Parkinson of Skin Grip. You may remember that I first had him on last year to share his journey with Skin Grip, and this is the follow-up to that interview. This episode is focused on consumer-packaged, reusable goods, and Isaac shares his tips for testing and marketing a product, working with influencers, and everything else you should do in the first year of starting your business. So without further ado, here is Year One with Isaac Parkinson. Okay, so the first section that I always want to cover is obviously the pre-launch section, because... It's really important to make sure that you have a good idea, that you test the idea, that you test the market, uh, make sure that the market is big enough for it, and that you just do all the right prep work as far as finding out how to manufacture or make it, how much to it's going to cost you, how much you need to sell it for, all that good stuff. So with you, um, with Skin Grip, obviously you found this idea from just looking at the problems that were around you that other people around you were facing and finding something that fit the need. So I think that's something that everybody can do with that. Once you had this idea, how would you go about testing the idea now uh, with the things that you learned from the first time you did it and everything you've learned along the way? How would you go about testing the product and making sure that the market is big enough for it? I would probably, you know, and this is something we did, but I would have done more of this is just read a ton of reviews. Reading reviews is like, I mean, it it is like, it's like the best place to find information about your customer. Are you talking about of competitors? Yeah. Yeah. Just like of competitors or something. I mean, Uh like, I mean, like most of the time, you know, when, when you discover a problem, you're discovering a problem that exists even though there's already companies doing what you potentially could be doing, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you you want to start a bakery, right? Um, it's not like there's no bakeries out there. Exactly. And so, like, I think, like, you know, in that case, it's like, well, I'm going to visit a bunch of bakeries and I'm going to read a ton of reviews and see what people don't like about that bakery, right? Because I want, I want to make sure my bakery does this part right so those people come to me, right? So... I mean, obviously, you know, if you're if you're building a completely new product that's never been built before, and you you know you're gonna get patents and all these this and that. I mean, that's a little bit different, um, and I think some of this still applies. But but um, I mean, if 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 the product exists already, potentially read a ton of reviews. I mean, not only will you learn what the problems are with the existing products, but you'll also understand the words that the customers use to describe their problem and to describe the product itself. And so when it comes to like marketing that product, you can literally take the same words they're using so that, you know, that they understand that you speak their same language. So that, that obviously, if, you know, if, if a product is existing or a service is existing, I think doing that is really helpful. And I wish we would have doubled down on that early on, especially for our marketing. I wish we would have read more reviews to pull words to use for the marketing. But besides that, I'd say just as simple as, you know, making a a Google form and get it out to as many people as possible, as soon as possible. And then tweak the Google form, do it again, give it to another, you know, another group of people. What would you put on that? I would keep it pretty short just because I don't think people love filling out surveys, Yeah, but you really want to understand that the problem is as 
bad as you think it is, mm-hmm. um, as well as uh, you want to have questions about the solution or the product you're going to be offering. And if it's really as helpful as you think it is. Mm-hmm. Um, so I typically would, would do probably like less than like five questions for sure. Um, and I, I just try to get that into as m- like to as many people in my target audience or my target market as possible. And to do that, I would just, you know, I would go to where those people hang out. When I, what I mean by hang out is like, obviously, you know, online, if there are groups, you know, Facebook groups or channels or like different websites where people are, you know, like Reddit, um, like, you know, in each industry, there's different like, you know, boards where people, yeah. you know, discussion boards where people hang out. I would get there and just be like, hey, like, you know, I'm not selling anything, just generally cur- curious, you know, to hear about people's experiences. You don't have to say you're selling anything right and just get as much feedback as possible. And, you know, even in like real life, you know, there's groups of people, you know, you can find through meetup and things like getting to know people face to face, asking them these questions. I think people are really willing to, to, to answer questions if they have problems with something. So yeah, people love giving their opinions. (laughs) Oh yeah. People love talking. So just got to ask them. Yeah, I agree with that. Definitely a big believer of getting face-to-face feedback from products and from my ideas and everything like that too. So just making sure that you collect as much data as possible about all of that. And on that survey and stuff, maybe not this initial survey, but once you use that survey to get feedback about the problem at hand, then once you're getting a little bit closer with your idea, I would also have like another survey or, or conduct like a product I don't even know. I guess like for with my cookies, like doing like a taste test thing, just getting people together and then asking, having them do like another survey this time about what your proposed solution is, asking them about the prices they would pay, about what they like about it, what they don't like about it. And so just viewing that as a multi-step process, I really like that idea that you had because I would never, I hadn't thought specifically before about going and just getting a general survey about kind of the market and about their problems and their challenges. But in reality, you're trying to solve their problems. And so if you can learn more about what they consider problems, they're going to point you in the right direction. And I loved your point about the marketing and using their exact words for it because they know what they're looking for. They know how to use that terminology. They know all of that. And so just really like focusing on all of that is extremely important. So I want to touch on another on the other part of kind of the preparation side of things. Two points uh, that I want to go over now. The first part of that is how do you know how much to charge your customers for your products? And number two, how do you find products or find manufacturers to help you make those products at a price point where you can make the margins that you need? Yeah. So like, I don't have any like background in, you know, pricing at all. Like I like a background in marketing and, and so, you know, price is obviously a part of marketing, but it's one of the areas that you rarely, you know, talk about or study real well. It's, I mean, it's, it's kind of hard to understand. Right. And so, I mean, obviously I, I think, you know, to your point, you know, doing surveys and asking people what they would pay, I think that goes a long way. And not just asking, you know, five people in your family group chat about it, but like ask people who you don't know and ask people from different demographics what they'd be willing to pay to really try to, you know, figure out what the majority of people are willing to spend on an item. I think that's super valuable. 
what we did and it didn't go well was the very like the very first couple of years I just looked at what was on the market um what the prices were and then I basically just like undercut them right and that does not work uh like trying to win on price is just a it's a race to the bottom mm-hmm. because there's always going to be someone willing to uh, you know offer their product for less yeah and I truly don't think that people are always looking to buy the lowest priced item. That's not what I do. When I shop, I'm not looking for the cheapest everything. I mean, sometimes that's the case, but rarely, you know, I'm looking for something that has a good, like a good perceived brand value that I feel like I can trust, that I feel like will work and be of quality, but also is of, you know, like not going to break my bank. So yeah, I, I started off by offering our product for way too low and after the first year or so, I decided, you know what? I don't want to play this game. I don't want to live in this rat race of just like, just barely scraping by. So we ended up raising our prices and we obviously, you know, we, we changed the product up. We made it a little bit better quality. We changed the packaging. We made it better quality. We improved the quality of just everything, you know, about our brand. And then obviously that perceived value was what allowed us to then become the highest priced item in our category. Mm-hmm. And so we increased our price. Like I said, on Amazon, I I believe we're still one of the more expensive items um, in our category. And um, the reason we can do that is because we have a solid brand. We have, you know, we have solid customer service. We have awesome branding. We have great content. Um, and so people like want to be a part of what we're building and we, you know, and our mission rather than just buying from some factory from China that threw up a listing, you know, and, and selling it for half the price. So I definitely think that you have to look at like the market, like what's out there and then decide like where you want to be. Like, do you want to be the luxury item? Do you want to be kind of that mid tier? Um, And I personally don't recommend being the lowest price and being, you know, the Walmart of brands, but you know, depending on what your goals are, you know, you have to choose what that looks like. Yeah, I love that. Especially the trying to win with price, you are never going to win. Because if you start by trying to win with price, what's going to happen? Maybe when you're a one-man show, you can do that. But you're going to inevitably start growing, and then you're going to need to afford more help. And so financially, you can't support those same low prices. And so if you're only focused on a price proposition, then your customer's are the exact same customers who are then going to jump ship to the next lowest price competitor that comes by because they only bought you based on price. So at that point, all of the hard work that you've done can potentially become a moot point because they're going to just leave you because they have no brand loyalty. They're only looking at price. And those aren't the type of customers that you're going to want to have to be able to build it. Now, like you said, the Walmart model is different because they focus so much on quantity that they can make those margins and everything work because they know that there are going to people be people who only focus on price because of their circumstances and whatever. And so it's just really hard to survive if you're not massive, if you don't have the funds to provide that extremely high quantity to make the very low price model work. Cause that's the only way that I've seen it be successful. Yeah. Like if your specialty is in maximizing efficiency, then by all means, you know, just sell as many as possible. That's not my specialty though, right? Like, so I, there's no way I could ever compete in that game. So yeah, you know, for for me, I just believe that 
you know, now that we've built a brand that has loyal fans, we could probably charge whatever we want that's within reason. Yeah. But we don't, obviously, because, I mean, diabetes, is, it's a very expensive disease. Mm-hmm. And so we, we try to stay within reason, but also be able to have a margin that allows us to do really cool stuff. We actually, for the past years in a row, we've, we've given out scholarships to 20 plus individuals that live with diabetes. We donate money each month to diabetes charities and, and companies um, trying to make uh, insulin accessible for all. And so, you know, w- without that higher price point and without building that community of, of brand loyalists, we couldn't do any of these things at all. And it's because those same customers are bought into your mission. And so they're willing to do that because they feel connected to your mission and to you making all these donations and providing all this help for their community. So it again, it comes into creating that brand loyalty, not just based on price, but making somebody buy into what you're doing. So I love that. I want to go jump into now the actual launch part of it. So we've talked a little bit about the pre-launch. How would you get ready? How would you price it? All that good stuff. Let's talk more about the launch. So what would you do now if you were going to relaunch your business to make sure that it is successful, both like from a marketing standpoint, um, from an operation standpoint, just to make sure that the first three months or so of the launch you knock it out of the park. Yeah. I would have built an audience before I built the product. And I say this because we were for, very fortunate that there was already demand for the product and we could kind of slide in and try to capture some of that demand um, on platforms such as Amazon and things. But if we wouldn't have had that, um, we'd have been really out of luck um, because, I mean, having an audience is basically having a group of people you can sell to immediately. So what I would have done, and this kind of goes pulling from the pre-launch, I would have done a lot more surveys, got a lot more feedback. And on those surveys, I would have had people put their email, right? So I would have Mm -hmm. had a huge list of people with a specific problem. I'd have their email. I'd have their consent to email them about this. And I would have launched the product to that email list. I think that would have been huge for us. That would have jump-started our business and obviously, you know, nowadays email lists are are really hot. So we're SMS lists. I would have, you know, started those lists early on so that, you know, we always had a group of people to sell to rather than just basically, you know, yelling in to avoid, you know, just saying, hey, we got a new product here. You know, no one's listening, but we have a new product. So I I create that audience very early. And then from there, how would you go about reaching out to that audience or to other potential audiences to get them to show interest and start purchasing from you? Yeah. So I would, I would build really good campaigns uh, for email, for SMS, obviously retargeting as well. I'd, I'd build out retargeting campaigns. What would you consider a good campaign? So, I mean, a good campaign for me is a solid landing page. So if you're running ads, you get people to a, a good landing page, uh, you get their information, their email, their phone number, and you can give them a, a freebie for that. Right. So mm-hmm. Obviously, you know, the people that maybe I had filled the surveys, I'd give them some sort of freebie to do the survey. Anyone that lands on a landing page, you know, it gets put on these lists. And then I'd have like an automation sequence of either emails or text messages that just basically onboarded them to what our brand was, what the problem is that we solve. I'd give them good value and, you know, information that would help them with their problem. And then also obviously sell them the product that would help solve their problems as well. 
So I'm talking, you know, anywhere from three to 10 messages, maybe mm-hmm. on these automation lists um, that are connected to your freebies, your landing page. And I, you know, try to make that just a big cycle of getting people onboarded to our brand because the hardest part about selling to people is building their trust. Yeah. And so if you can build trust with them through email, SMS, or like social content, I think that's the absolute easiest way to get people to start buying from you. And once they start buying from you, then they're telling their friends, you know, they're telling the people in their groups they're a part of. Um, and it just kind of snowballs from there. Is there anything else that you would do to like talk? Let's talk marketing in general now. Once you've kind of gotten over that initial section of just like the launch push, sometimes new companies can see a decline of interest just because there's a little bit of novelty involved when there's new companies and it piques people's interest. But after a while, that can tend to fade away. So how do you go about or how would you go about driving in new business after that novelty wears off? I probably would have focused more on creating content. So I personally focused mainly on ads. So we just ran more and more ads. And I, I don't feel like some of our funnels you know, were, were very strong. We were getting people into the, into the funnel, but we weren't really you know, converting a lot of them. We weren't giving them other touch points besides mm-hmm. just kind of selling to them. And so what I would do is I would build more content that's helpful. So again, I'm building that trust without necessarily selling to them. And this can look, this can look like uh, a number of things. This could be creating helpful blog posts that then you're, you know, pushing out to that list and saying, Hey, you know, do you have this problem? Even just, you know, giving them solid value or information through email um, or through social posts. Obviously I would have focused more on TikTok when it first got popular and, I think a lot of businesses get it wrong where they think that they should talk about themselves and how cool they are and how cool their product is. But the truth is like, no one cares about you, right? No one cares about your product or your brand unless you care about them, right? They care about themselves. And so we haven't done an amazing job at this, but we've really tried our hardest to make sure we're telling the story of you as the customer or you as the viewer Mm -hmm. of this content, you are the hero in your own story. And we are just the guide providing you with knowledge or whatever it is that helps you be the hero in your story and, you know, succeed in your life. And so it's something we're doing now that we're really focused on is creating, you know, TikTok content, podcast content, blog content that is directly correlated to what people need to be successful in their journey with diabetes we're not talking about sensors falling off all the time because obviously, you know, yeah, that happens. And that's how we sell people is, Hey, this is the problem. We have the solution. We're not talking about that, you know, every single day because people don't want to hear about that 24 seven. Yeah. What we are talking about is we're telling people about the news and diabetes. We're, t- we're giving them the news of, Hey, did you guys hear about this new development with insulin being uh, less expensive? Did you guys hear about this new device that's coming out? That's going to do this, that, and the other. Right. And so, we're trying to be that that source of information in the diabetes community mm-hmm. where we're teaching people, we're giving people value. And then later down the line, we are going to offer them the product we have to sell. One of the, <laughs> it was one of my proudest moments, I guess I could say, but it's also really annoying. There's this guy, this author called Donald Miller, and I really like him. And me and Isaac have actually talked about him a lot previously. I read a book of his called Building a Story Brand. And yeah, I think that's, that's the one that's, started it all with me with him but he talks about that exact thing like making your customers the hero of their journey show 
how you, what you are doing can help their lives be better because they don't care about you. They care about making their own lives better. And so one of the things that was really cool is I redid my entire website uh, with Majestic, with my window cleaning company, based on the messaging and everything that I learned in that book. And it actually worked really, really well. And we were seeing a, a lot of success and it really helps catapult our growth. And then it was kind of funny because I started seeing this same email come through multiple times. We had like a, a landing page funnel type of thing, just about like getting a quote and all that. And I started seeing the same email come through multiple times, like requesting quote. And I was like, wait, what? That looks familiar. It's kind of weird that it's happening all this time. So then I end up just out of my curiosity, looking him up. Turns out that guy owned a window cleaning company as well. And he saw just that we had been doing pretty well. So then I go find his company, pull up his website, not the wording, but the entire structure and everything was exactly like ours was. And I was really annoyed, obviously, because I was like, are you kidding me? But at the same time, I was like, well, I mean, I guess that means that it's doing something right. So I'll take it as a win. And then obviously I changed up my website again, but I just thought that was really funny. And it points to the power of the messaging that you were saying right there of focus on your customer, show how this will make their life easier and better, and then you will find a a customer for life. So that actually is a perfect transition to the next part, which is about retention and about like growth through word of mouth, all of that, making your customers brand ambassadors, basically. How would you go about starting or keeping those current customers that you have coming back for more and encouraging them to share and talk about this with their friends so that you can find that word of mouth growth that's so successful? Yeah, word of mouth has probably been one of the best things for us. And the way that I have gone about it is just trying to make the company as human as possible. People don't want to work with uh, you know robots or AI bots. They don't want to work with you know, people that aren't like them, right? They want to know that they're being understood and that we have something in common. And so uh, first and foremost, I've tried to, you know, I've tried to be as transparent as possible. I've set up like emails, like automated emails for whenever someone orders a product with us, like the first time they get an email from me directly. Obviously in the early days, like that could, that could be more manual. Now it has to be automated, but every email that every reply that I get back, I do respond to personally. And so just like that human touch has been really nice. I actually, in the early days, and I would definitely recommend this, I use an app called Bonjoro. And basically what you can do is when someone orders, you can record a video for them and say, hey, thanks for your order. It really means a lot. And like, so I would do that for every single order. And obviously, you know, we had like less than 100 orders a week. So I was maybe doing like, you know, 100 videos or less a week. And I would Bonjoro each and every customer and say, hey, thank you so much. It really means a lot. And then the second time they made a purchase, I would do the same thing. So those those little human touch points really kind of uh, boost our company in, in the beginning. And then besides that, we also launched a transparency page. You know, so one thing about di- like the diabetes industry in general, it lacks transparency. So you have a lot of organizations and nonprofits who 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 take. I mean, I, I won't say they necessarily take bribes, but they they take money from large businesses that um, lobbyists. You know, obviously, yeah, exactly, <laughs> right. So, um, it, it's just kind of a messy situation where you know these insulin companies and these other pharma companies are paying lobbyists or they're paying organizations a lot of money 
um, even nonprofits um, to say good things about them, right? And so the price of insulin has skyrocketed, and it's it's really sad to see people you know need to go to Canada and Mexico to buy insulin because it's so expensive here. So just in general, the diabetes industry is not transparent. And so one differentiator for us early on that I felt like we could do is be transparent. And so on our website, we have like a price breakdown of what our products cost, where we get them from, why they are priced the way they are. Um, And that's, you know, part of us being more of a human company and, and building trust. And so as you are transparent, as you build trust, as you kind of peel back the curtain of your company and say, hey, you know, this is what life looks like at our company. Like, you know, this is what's going on. Or, you know, we send a survey and say, hey, we're thinking about these new things. What do you guys think? Um, people feel like they have skin in the game and uh, they become loyal fans. And so I always kind of like told people that if if I ever saw like a sticker of ours, like on a bumper, on the bumper of a car, that I would have made it. And we actually, we've seen multiple stickers on people's cars now from Skin Grip, which is really kind of crazy. But my next thing is if, if I ever see someone get a skin grip tattoo, I know that we have a strong, a strong <laughs> brand. So that's the next step. Well, maybe that'll be my first tattoo. <laughs> I love that. And I think that that idea is very cool of just uniquely reaching out to people individually and telling them that you're grateful for them and that you appreciate them and just having that human touch. That's something that I don't do as well as I should, but I definitely try to, um, both personally and then in business as well, because it just makes a world of a difference in establishing any kind of relationship that you're trying to do. So I love that. We've covered a lot of things. Uh, Two questions that I wanted to kind of go over with you on how you would go about doing it again, based on just our first previous interview that we did. The first one is you before had talked about kind of uh, coming across situations with the FDA where you weren't quite as prepared as you could have been. Uh, maybe there were new things that you didn't know about. And so you ended up having your products get stuck and having to pay fines to be able to get them released and everything. With this knowledge of everything that you've done just along the way, how would you go about preparing yourself for the legal side again if you were to restart? I would definitely invest money into the legal side early. And what I mean by that would be, you know, it's really easy to get started for cheap and to just try to do everything yourself. But there are some things that they may feel like they're too expensive early on, Mm -hmm. but they're just, they're just so needed to not cause frustration later on. Yeah. So a couple of things I would have done early on, I would have spent the money to make sure we, we had our trademark and that we had anything we needed you know, a patent on to have a patent. I would have done that early because that takes time that that can take up to a, you know, a year sometimes. So it, it takes some time. So get started early. The other mistake we made was that there's a barcode system called GS one. Um, it's, you know, the standard for barcodes, um, around the world and like to have a subscription with GS one and to get barcodes, it's hundreds of dollars. And in the beginning, I didn't have that money. So, for some reason, I thought it was okay to go buy like barcodes on eBay. <laughs> and um, that set us back months, years later, because we had bad barcodes and we didn't have the correct barcodes we needed for Amazon. So there are little things that you just need to do the right way and you need to suck it up and you need to pay for. Um, and so some of those things be, you know, hire a lawyer, yeah, hire an accountant, pay for the correct barcodes pay for the correct regulations. Like if if you have to get FDA registered, then get FDA registered. Um, 
Now, did you know that you needed to do that uh, to get FDA registered at the time? Or? I didn't know. Okay. I, I did not know. So I don't really blame myself too much for yeah. that. But some of the other stuff I did know yeah. and I didn't do until later. And then it causes problems later. So yeah, overall, just there are professionals out there that can save you a lot of time and headache. And sometimes it costs hundreds of dollars or thousands of dollars. You should do it. If you don't have the money, find a way to get the money and do it properly. But the, yeah, I, I would definitely say, you know, most of my problems have been from just not paying the professionals when okay. I should have. Yeah, that makes sense. Thank you. Then the other question that I had about if you would use them again, if you did use them, or if you would do it again in the future, you had talked about working with influencers before. Is that something that you guys have done at Screen, Skin Grip, or is that something that you would do if you were restarting again now? Yeah, for sure. I definitely would. The hard thing about influencers is, I mean, there's a lot of them and some of them will work really well and some of them won't work at all. And so you have to be really picky on who you partner with. Um, I would say that probably the best way to do it is, is see if you can start off small with some of them and just test out their audience to see if their audience is even interested in your product and then kind of scale up to spend more money with them. We had a situation where we paid a really big influencer um, a lot of money, and uh, I believe we got maybe two sales from it, and we didn't see any other brand lift elsewhere from it, and so it left like a really bad taste in our mouth. And you know, we used most of our budget on the influencer, and because of that, it kind of put us back a few months. But you know, I think there are a lot of good like micro influencers out there. What I mean by that is like people who were like under 20,000 followers, sometimes even under 10,000 followers who have just a really highly engaged audience. And those people, sometimes it's like we have to like beg them to take our money. But, you know, having a handful, like finding those people and having a handful of influencers like them who were just like begging to pay to, you know, to post about us, that's really been good for us. And then when it comes to like influencers that cost more money, we're very picky and we do run tests and we see how their affiliate links perform and then we end up spending more money what exactly do you mean by that like is there a way that they you say like hey i'm only going to pay you i want to pay you x amount of what of the overall and you're going to only show this to x amount of people or what do you mean exactly when you say running a smaller test i think it just like means like negotiating with them because like you're both trying to build trust with each other right like they are running a business they are a business and they're trying to make money they're trying to live and you're trying to grow your business as well. So there has to be a mutual understanding of like what the goals need to be. And so like with a product like ours that has a pretty low price point, it can be really difficult to advertise a number of ways. And so, you know, things like there's certain newsletters in our industry and there's certain podcasts in our industry that we just, we we can't do because the price is too high for us. And, you know, the, the pharma companies can definitely afford it because for them, you know, it's like, their, their product is so, is so expensive that, yeah, like, you know, they get a couple of purchases and they've made their money back. Um, so you have to know your numbers really well. And running tests would probably look like the following. So I would say, you know, like with, with a few people, we've started off and we said, okay, like, what is your rate? Because this is what we're looking for. We're looking for, you know, hopefully X amount of sales and we need to make it profitable for us. So, you know, what is your rate for a post? What is your rate for a giveaway, what is your rate for whatever collaboration it is. And, and then we kind of just like, you know, pick like the lower end of maybe the possibilities and we, we negotiate a strategy of, okay, well, we can't afford that. How about we do this? Like such as like, how about we pay you this amount 
and we give you free product. You know, what about if we use our list to promote you, right? Like what if we email our list and say, hey, you know, this is our friend so-and-so. They're doing this really cool thing on their blog about this. You should follow them. Like Mm -hmm. there's other ways you can provide value to them other than just paying them, you know, $10,000 for a post. And so I think you have to get a little bit creative, but you you can do that, right? They're willing to negotiate with you. And so we've done that multiple times where we've either, you know, provided value in a different way. So we didn't necessarily have to pay the high fee to, to test out their audience. That's a very unique idea. I haven't heard of somebody doing a, a kind of a backwards promotion with someone who's promoting them before, but I like it. It's it's like a follow I mean, for follow type yeah, that, thing. But, yeah, no, but that, that kind of sounds kind of vague. But I mean, like, you know, for example, it's like if it's like if we do a collaboration, we could say, hey, the collaboration involves you posting about us, but also involves us pushing people to your to your blog or whatever it is they want to push people to. Yeah. And it's just all about being creative and finding ways within your budget when you're getting started to be able to work with those people that don't involve finances. Exactly. Yeah. There's no one way to do it correctly, but you have to look at the situation and know what, like you have to look at what value you have and, you know, understand what they're looking for and see if there's anything that matches up for both of you to be happy. 100%. Yeah. The last section that I want to go over is about like the entrepreneur as a person. Obviously, there's a lot of skills that are needed to be able to run a business successfully. So I'm curious for you, like what would you say are like three most important things that you would do again in your first year to grow as an entrepreneur, to get whatever skills you need, whatever it is, to establish yourself and run the business successfully? Yeah, I have a few things that like kind of like the foundational points that I would start off with. They're not necessarily skills. I think that you could be a founder and have any type of skill, but like three things that I think like would be like the solid foundation of like me starting my business again. Um, And even just like kind of going forward, making sure that I stay successful um, would be probably number one, just making sure you're in the right lane. And what I mean by that would be, are you selling the right product? Are you doing the right thing? Like, you know, you mentioned you don't like doing windows. And it doesn't mean like you can't enjoy doing windows and like make that successful, but you'd probably have a lot easier of a time if like, you know, you're doing something you absolutely love, like running a bakery, right? Like, because ultimately, whatever you pick, you need to pick something that you can stick with for five years, like I've mentioned, as just a rule of thumb. Mm -hmm. So if you're in the wrong lane, or you're doing the wrong thing, get out of it and find the right one, and then commit to it for for the long haul, um, as long as you're in the right place. The second one would be hire to my weaknesses early. So I kind of already mentioned like hire the professionals, like hire the lawyer. You're like, you're not a lawyer. Maybe you are. And in that case, you're lucky. You know, hire the lawyer, hire hire uh, anyone it is that is a professional in what they do and can help you out. And then, you know, for me personally, like I'm not great at operations. Like I'm not good with the numbers, you know, running the operations and the spreadsheets. Like I am terrible on Excel. So I wish that earlier on I would have hired people that are experts and they know exactly what they're doing because I spent so much time like doing the books and I had no idea what I was doing that honestly it drained me so much that I like, I didn't have time for the, like the fun stuff in my mind, which was marketing. So I would hire my weaknesses early. And even if, you know, I have to, even if I'm not able to pay myself as much from the business, just reinvest that money back into people that know what they're doing. The last one, and we've kind of already touched upon this, but get your customers involved from the beginning. 
make them feel like they're a part of this process, that they're the one deciding on the products. They're the one deciding on the decisions you make in the company. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because when other people feel like they have a say, they, you know, feel ownership and it only increases the love of your brand. And so I would, I would make sure that you're telling the right story. You're making them the hero and you're creating experiences that um, just further promote that story for them. You've done that extremely well already. Uh, It's something that I have very much admired about you and just seeing all the stuff that you've done on social with working with your customers, getting them involved in whatever way. That's for sure been one of the, the big takeaways that I've noticed along the years of something that you're doing extremely well that some other people are not doing, that most people aren't doing very well. So very good tip for sure. And it just makes it a lot more fun when you build those personal connections with your customers individually too. So yeah, you're totally right. It does make it fun. (laughs) Thank you again for talking and sharing all this stuff with me, but also with our listeners, because I've learned a ton. I know we always talk and it's good to be able to bounce ideas off of each other. But even just in this, I've learned so much more. You have so many great ideas and so many great thoughts. And so I just really appreciate you being able to sit down and talk to me about all of these and share these as well so that everyone out there listening can enjoy and learn from you too. So thank you. And I'm super excited to see what you do with everything in the future too. I appreciate it, man. It's been good chatting with you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Year One with Isaac Parkinson of Skin Grip. Lucia4931 wrote a review and said, I really appreciate how Kyle asks questions and leads discussions that are focused on helping listeners gain new insights and help them as they begin their entrepreneurial journey. That is my goal with this podcast, and I hope that you are able to learn a few things in this episode that will help you in your business. I'd love to hear what your biggest takeaway from this episode was, so please just take one minute and write a review wherever you are listening right now to let me know. And if you have already written a review, you can always email me at freedomtofailpodcast at gmail.com where I read and respond to all the feedback or questions you might have. And now that it's Friday, set aside some time so that you can work towards your goals this weekend. And until next time, embrace the hard work and don't let failure stand in the way of achieving your dreams.